namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu samasambuddhasa namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu samasambuddhasa namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu samasambuddhasa purandamang sangang namasami In the, in the tradition that I come from, this um, chanting in the beginning of a Dhamma talk is a, is a signal. And so when you, when you hear that, it's, a, it's an invitation to sit up and to be aligned and balanced and relaxed and to let your attention be very strongly in your own body sense. And so, interestingly enough, it's not a signal to put your attention on me to put your attention in your own body sense. And if you're listening um, in this way, where like 90% of your attention is resting in your own body sense, and 10% is listening or focused on what's happening here, then the lovely thing about it is, is, is that if something you hear resonates, you really know because you're completely connected with your own body sense. And when you hear something that resonates, you know, you can notice... Your shoulders relax and your breath deepen. And, you know, there can be this, like, aha, a a bodily aha, you know. And you can learn to trust that because that that kind of body response is something that comes from a a deep um, resonance of something which is true for you. And, And similarly, you know, sometimes there's no resonance. And so what you can notice or you can know is, is, is that there's absolutely no requirement to take on board anything that doesn't resonate. You know, just leave it with me. So this um, kind of talk is, is different than a lecture or a bunch of information. It's a reflective talk, and it's for that reason there's the uh, request not to take notes. Because when one is taking notes, you're focused on the, the words and the languaging, and you're not so present with the bodily felt sense. And so for me, it's, it's when one is present with that, that the greatest possibility of really connecting with what is being said happens. Now, I'm not the slightest bit interested that you remember. That's not important. What's important is, is that you're attentive to your own inner sense of things and really responsive. Now, one of the curious things is, is that sometimes we can have a really strong kind of, this does not feel right. And sometimes that really strong, this does not feel right, comes because, you know, I speak extemporaneously, I don't plan things, and sometimes my own personal material can come through in a way which is not useful, and so that might be what you're picking up. But also, this doesn't feel right can be an indication that there's some kind of resistance because it's actually really important that we investigate. And so what is needed is the discernment to be able to differentiate between a resistance because it's something to do with me being off track or it's a resistance to one's own ability to investigate what's being touched there. And so learning to differentiate between these kind of it doesn't feel right ends up being a tremendously valuable thing to know how to do. And it's not easy to describe it because it's like a somatic sounding board where 
you know, one gives us inclinations to move more deeply inward and investigate, and the other is to hold clearer boundaries and say, no, no, this is not correct. But this kind of discernment is what can happen when we stay connected with our own body sense, and it can happen when we really know that in a context like this, it's a very important opportunity not to believe anything that you hear, but to reflect on it. And it's partly because of that that this situation is so special, because it's a really, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, sacred, unique, very um, precious, not in a kind of prissy precious, but precious and really something valuable, precious thing to have people's attention in this kind of way. And so it's it's just deeply important that this is respected uh, mutually, you know. And so when I chant this, this is my indication to myself. This is not so much about me chit-chatting or getting off on my own high horse about, you know, my own views and opinions. Or And I have plenty, I can assure you, I have plenty, you know, <laughs> about everything, <laughs> you know. But it's not about that. This is this is about a, a reflection on on themes in terms of dharma, and the whole point of it is to really see if it can support our hearts and bodies opening and furthering us in our own deepest aspiration. And so, when I chant, it's my reminding myself. You know, this is not just hanging out on the kind of street corner, you know, talking to somebody chit chat. You know. And then that way, you know, the rituals of a form can be supportive for illuminating or highlighting or remembering certain parts of things that are important, you know. So, you know, this kind of thing, a Dhamma talk, is, it has the opportunity of being important or the possibility of touching. And so if we each know what our responsibility is, then we can support each other and the group as a whole to come into a resonance that's really about awakening. And that's beautiful. I mean, that's really, really lovely. And not that common. You know? It's not an everyday occurrence that this kind of stuff happens. So it's good to take care. So that's some of the form around the monastic culture is to protect these things. So. First day of retreat, I think everybody gets badges of honor, you know, special medals of courage. You know, the first day of retreat for many people is not an easy first, not a, not an easy thing, you know. There's just, uh, um, you know, the it's an, it's just incredible. You'd think it would be simple to sit quietly and breathe, and walk, and. You know, there's not a whole lot to decide and not a whole lot to do, and there's not a whole huge amount of decisions to make. Maybe how much salad you put on your plate and whether you go to this tree or to that tree. And, you know, I mean, the decisions that we're making are not as complicated as our normal life. But what that highlights or what that focuses then is is what's happening in our body and our heart and our minds. And, And sometimes... It is uh, remarkable how the level of busyness of our lives is a covering over what's happening in our body, in our heart, in our minds. And we don't actually know how we feel. And we don't actually know what we think. 
we don't actually know where we are. And so then, given an opportunity to come into the present and know how we think and how we feel and where we are, just to be with our body, you know, there's a whole huge range of different things that people experience. And some of it is lovely, you know, like the joy of discovering, you know, the mischievousness of stepping on snow, you know. Or just the the flow of, you know, being with each other, you know. Or how delicious the food can taste if one is not in a full-scale panic about what it might be not to have dinner, you know. And, 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 And yet it can also be like, you know, this thick kind of, I don't know, like hungover, you know. Feels like we were all out partying last night or something, you know. You can't think, you can't feel, it feels numb, everything feels like it's ten feet wide, you know, it doesn't coordinate, you know, it hurts, it all hurts, it just hurts so much. How is it possible that it could all hurt so much? You know, and then the question, you know, what am I doing here? Why did I come? You know, what is this all about? Why? Why would anyone do this? You know, how on earth could this ever possibly be of help? You know, in the thoughts loop. and You know, should I go? Should I stay? Should I talk to them? What should I do? Or then maybe it's like, oh, this is fantastic. Maybe I'll ordain. I'll know what I'll do. I'll, I'll go and I'll shave my head and I'll ordain and I'll spend the rest of my life living like this, you know. And so we can oscillate between, like, these extremes of, I love it, I hate it, I don't know what I'm doing, I think this is wonderful, this is great, I love everybody here, everybody, it just doesn't make me feel comfortable at all. And there's this whole kind of, whatever is going on is often just kind of like a, you know, an unraveling of layers of feeling of, you know, what preceded getting here. And for different people, it would be different things. You know, for some, family is deeply nourishing. And for some, it is not. (laughs) You know, for some, you know, the holiday times brings about just enormous sense of feeling of belonging and a sense of comfort. And for others, it does not. You know, some really cherish contact. And for some, it's just really challenging, you know. So we each come with whatever kind of history has brought us here. And we sit in a quiet space and there's not 10,000 things to do and we're not multitasking. We're doing one thing at a time. And it's remarkable how challenging it can be. And yet, you know, the courage to stay with it, you know, the courage to be willing to come again to another sitting, the courage to, to listen and to try and to explore and to experiment, and to begin to feel one's own feeling way through is really beautiful to see. You know, it's really beautiful to see. You know, it takes courage, it takes guts to do this. This is not for wimps, you know. There's just no way this is for wimps. You know, to face up to who we are and to who what happening when we just sit here. You know, so it is a relevant question, you know, why did we come? And I can't answer that question for you. You know, why did you come? Why are you here? What was the 
What was the, the signal or the trigger or the inspiration? And you know that. I don't know that for you. But we can look at this in a, in a kind of a larger context, you know, in terms of, you know, what this has as potential and why do we collectively, individually, why do we do this? And for me, I, I always find it helpful going back to the story of the Buddha. Because for me, somehow, in his story, there's a lot of relevance that I can make in my own personal experience. You know, the Buddha was born into a family. And um, when he was born, there was a kind of seeing that either he was going to be a, a world-ruling monarch or he was going to be a, a fully awakened one. And the dad was like really clear what he wanted him to be. You know, a Buddha was not on his job description. You know, that was not the career development program that he had in mind. So he did what he could, according to legend, to protect his son from being dissatisfied with life because he thought that if we kept him happy and entertained and gave him everything that the good things you can give a person, that he would naturally want to follow in his father's footsteps and be in a position of that kind of influence. And is often the case, our parents are not fully awakened. And the choices that they make are not the choices that are in alignment with what is the power and the potential of full awakening. They come from their own conditioning and motives and desires. And it's totally understandable. So deeply human. And yet, as gifted as Prince Siddhartha was, and as much as he was given, and in that time and in that area, had the best of the best. He had three palaces to live in, and the best food, and the best entertainment, and the best education, and he was tremendously talented, and very handsome, and very capable. You know, there came a point where he, he had contact with, you know, what was regarded as divine messengers, or heavenly messengers. And these heavenly messengers was the experience of old age, sickness, and death. Now you think, you know, somebody who's 29 years old, they've never seen old age, sickness, and death. It seems like more like a legend than a reality. What I can relate to is, is that there are times when we're kind of buffered by it. We don't actually let it affect us. And then something happens, and it really affects us. And sometimes it can take until our 20s or our late 20s or our 30s until we really get it, what it is to get sick. And that it's not just for some people. It's actually kind of a universal predicament for what it is to grow old and how unpleasant and unsexy growing old actually is, you know? Or what it is like, you know to die. And, you know, most of us don't really think about it or think that it's something that we're going to go through. We think that it happens to them or we think that it'll happen when I'm a grandma or a grandpa, you know, when I've lived a full life. But the truth is, is that none of us know when it will happen. But the other truth is that this is something which will happen to each of us. So this is a gateway that every single one of us will pass, and we don't know when it will be. None of us will know for sure that we will survive this retreat. Obviously, 
I have an invested interest that we do. <laughs> but the truth is, is that we don't really know. We don't really know. So when Prince Siddhartha was faced with the reality of these kind of things, you know, it was like he was really shaken. Really shaken. Because he realized that as powerful as he was, or as talented as he was, or as as endowed as he was, none of the things that he had or none of the possibilities that he was going to open up to were going to address these basic predicaments. None of them were. It didn't matter how much power or wealth he had. He could not resolve sickness or old age or death through any of them. And then he saw a wandering mendicant and kind of figured out that what this person was doing was on a quest for enlightenment. And it's like he'd never thought about that, that there is even such a thing as enlightenment. And so when you juxtapose the reality of birth, old age, sickness against and death against the possibility of enlightenment, you know, what happened was a longing to find something that is beyond, something that lasts, something that conditions can't just take away at any instant, something that's profoundly satisfying. So we live in a world which has embedded in its value system that more is better, less is not okay, and that if we get what we want or get rid of what we want, that's where our happiness lies. And the more power we have, the more capacity we have to manipulate the world according to our own wishes, and the greater our ability is to be able to navigate and to create a world of our own choosing which by definition, according to this value system, is where our happiness comes from. Check it out. Does it work? Now, certainly, having some capacity to navigate one's own world sphere gives one certain amount of ability to influence things. And some of those influences are very beneficial. It's not like it's all a write-off. You know, being able to navigate health issues, having the capacity to go to a doctor, you know, being able to live in a house, you know, having enough clothes to wear, having a job which is satisfying. These are non-trivial things. You know, when you go through the street and you see people who are living on the street and you realize what it might be like to be living on the street in the wintertime in Colorado, you know, I don't know that any of us are living on the street. And so we have a a level of privilege that not everybody has. And this level of privilege supports our ability to practice. It's not like it's a bad thing. You need these basic requisites in order to be able to practice. Yeah. But what we get mixed up about is, is, is that we think that our job or our food or being able to choose the food we want or have the partner we want or have the relationship we want or be able to decide or be able to have a certain amount of money or to have the car we want 
to have the freedom of these kinds of choices is the thing that's going to make us ultimately happy. Check it out. Is that your experience? Is that true to your experience? So we are living in a time of change. And people did buy houses. And they did have cars and they did have jobs. And now things have shifted and lots of people who bought houses no longer can have those houses. Or they don't no longer have jobs. There's lots of people who no longer can afford health insurance. But if the whole of our life sphere or our sense of happiness and well-being is dependent on having these external conditions and they change, where does that leave us? It leaves us absolutely devastated. So the Buddha was in a position, before he became a Buddha, he was Prince Siddhartha, but I always mix him up. I always call him a Buddha, even though he wasn't quite the Buddha yet. So, You know, he decided that he was going to give everything away. His power, his position, his status, his social standing, his job prospects, and the close connections with all of his family, everything that he had. Because for him, there was something really compelling about the possibility of a freedom that was not dependent on conditions. Now, you have to feel in your own heart if there's anything about that which resonates as being of interest to you. What would it be like? Or can you imagine what it might be like have a sense of peace and happiness that was not dependent on what people thought of you, not dependent on your health, not dependent on the amount of fame that you had, not dependent on the social circumstance around you. Something that was, in fact, beyond old age, sickness, and death, that those things could not even affect. Is that of interest? So all of us come here with everything that we bring. We come with our our loves, we come with our hates, we come with our passions, we come with our stories, we come with our history, we come with our families, we come with our brokenness, we come with our experiences, and we come with our longings. This is how we come, and it couldn't possibly be otherwise. And sometimes what we experience when we first come is the enormous potential of what we've stepped into. And sometimes what we experience when we first come is the obstacles that are keeping us from realizing it. And yet we're all here. Each one of us with a body, a heart, and a mind that feels, that senses, that perceives, that has fears, that experiences pain and pleasure with aspirations, with habit energies, with virtue, with capacity. So one of the interesting things about 
sitting with what it is to be a person is the question, what is it to be a person? (laughs) How much of this is me? How much of this is my parents? How much of this is my society? How much of this is the pressure that I feel about from the people around me? How much of this is my choosing? How much of this is my fearing? What is it? How is it? And you can see, you know, just the dance of, you know, self-consciousness that's arising and wanting to do what's correct and feel attuned to one's own inner sense and yet be in harmony with the group and how some simple thing like walking in a group with others can have such a lot going on in terms of, you know, where do I feel comfortable and what happens when I don't feel comfortable and and who are these people and is it okay and yes it feels lovely and maybe it doesn't feel lovely and I feel better when I do it by myself and, but actually maybe this is really good or, and all the kinds of thoughts and feelings and stuff that comes up you know as we're trying to locate ourselves in this other group and as we're trying to locate ourselves what we're seeing is the composite conditioning that's arising It's being activated in a different context through different things. And we have our own responses to all of that. So what we're interested in doing is not impose a kind of trip as to who you are, what you're supposed to do, or what you're supposed to think, or what you're supposed to believe, but invite an opportunity to start opening up the layers and seeing... What's right? What's true? What serves? What no longer serves? And is this connected to my own authentic being, my own aspiration? Or is this stuff that I'm carrying from other people, other place, other context? When we are able to touch who we are, not as an intellectual concept, not as a a philosophy person who can, you know, speak, you know, spout it out. But as a a being, when we know who we are, there's something radically different about that than not knowing who we are. And living as a response mechanism to all of the ideas that I think I should be, plus all of the ideas that everybody else thinks they should, I should be, and trying to navigate some kind of a dance between what I think and they think, and meanwhile, who am I? Where am I? How do I find myself? How do I locate that? And what does it feel like when I do? So it does take courage. It takes enormous courage to even ask, who am I? And then to sit with what happens when you ask. unraveling, you know, the unraveling. So part of this is a, is a fasting, you know, like a purification. And when you're fasting, sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable. And as we're fasting from sense contact and constructing the idea of who we are, from distraction and dispersion and multitasking, 
we come in contact with this being here. You know, and after whatever we've been through, sometimes it's a lot just to be with this being here. You know, the thoughts and the feelings and the moods, the body sensations. Just to be with the body sensations is a lot. Sometimes the body doesn't feel very comfortable. It takes a while. So in fasting, there's usually cycles. You know, there's a kind of detox process where stuff is kind of emptying out of the system. And then oftentimes there's a real kind of lightening, a clarification, and energizing. And so we're here with our own process, and there's something like that that's happening as well. Now let me go back to the Buddhist story see if I can tie it into ours. You know, so the Buddha set off on this journey, and he was determined to find something that was beyond old age, sickness, and death. And he went to the best teachers that were there at the time. And they were all masters of concentration. And he attained their level of mastery in a very, very short period of time. And these are the kind of the most refined states of concentration and experiences that you can have in the human realm. So tremendously subtle and pleasant, but not in any kind of an agitating way. And yet, when the conditions would end, the concentration would shift, he was back with the same kind of dilemmas that he had before. His knees hurt. He wanted more salad what was going to be posted on Facebook. (laughs) And so, you know, he could recognize that even though these states of concentration were sublime, it didn't answer his fundamental question, which is what is beyond old age, sickness, and death. And then his own intuition brought him back to a, a, a lesser state of concentration, And that lesser state of concentration also had a reflective awareness component to it. And he had the intuition that it was through that that he would find the way. So he had mastered the concentrations, but that was not the mastery of the concentrations was not his access. It was the insight of seeing things clearly. So there came a time for him where he got to the edge of his rope and he just said, listen, I've had it. You know, I've done everything. I've, 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 I've worked this as hard as I know. If I can't, you know, it's like nibbana or bust, basically. But you see, we hear that and we say, the Buddha did it, so can I. And, you know, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of retreat centers where somebody says nibbana or bust, and, and then we have to have a kind of a, a gentle, loving team pick them up, scoop them up, and... and um, hold them until they come back together again because if we experience too much pain and we don't have the training to endure it our minds can separate from our bodies and we end up not in a nibbana state but in something quite different from that that's actually quite painful yeah but he had had the training and so when he said that he was able to make the determination to say listen you know this is it I'm going to stay with this until I understand it, or I prefer to die. You know, I just prefer to let my blood dry up, my bones turn to dust. And so, in that determination, the conditions came together where he did see clearly. 
and things opened up for him. And one of the things that I find really fascinating was the story of the temptation of Mara. So Mara is the personification of everything that we find challenging. So the first thing that came was lust. Now, for a young man who is heterosexual, lust would often be the form of a beautiful woman. And so Mara sent his enticing, beautiful daughters to come and see if they could throw him off of his seat. And they did everything in their power to try. And he didn't need to engage in battle with them. He didn't need to fight them. Nor did he need to follow them. All he needed to say was, I know you, Mara. Now, I always find it very curious, and I would think it would be a fascinating conversation, is that if you're not young, male, and heterosexual, what is it that arouses lust? You know, for me, it isn't a physical body that activates me. It's the tenderness of a heart. It's the possibility to connect. It's the ability to be, to be seen and known and met that I find tremendously compelling. And it's that that gives rise to sexual desire. But wouldn't that be a fascinating conversation to see how we all differ? (laughs) So I tell this story with an invitation to not place yourself in the box that the Buddha was in. And just to know that the invitation is to know for yourself how do you experience lust. Because lust is a very powerful force and it needs to be known and seen and understood. So the daughters of Mara couldn't do it, so then he sent the next, I don't know what it's called in a military thing, the next the next whatever, the next layer, the next strategy, the next battalion, I don't know what you call it. And that had to do with anger, all right? And so, you know, a young man expresses anger in a kind of out there kind of way. And so this was about, you know, bows and arrows and spears, and and it was an out there kind of manifestation of aggression. You know, I've been in communities with women, and women do it very differently. It's no less terrifying. (laughs) It just looks really, really different. You know, for us, we don't duke it out on the table or with each other physically. We poison each other's belonging or sense of safety. But there it is, the force of aggression. And again, he didn't need to engage in battle. He did not need to fight it off. He didn't need to believe it, nor did he need to disbelieve it. All he needed to do was say, I know you, Mara. This is the field of aggression, and this is how it manifests. Now, the last one I find just tremendous, because you think, you know, poor pathetic me, comparing myself to the Buddha, it's slightly a high order, but the last horde of Mara had to do with self-doubt. And so, you know, lust didn't knock him off his seat. Aggression didn't knock him off his seat. 
And what about self-doubt? So they came and said, Who are you to think you can be free? All right? Anybody relate to that? I mean, I think for some of us, we have another question we have to deal with. Do I have the right to exist? Before I can even ask the question, do I have the right to be free? And so our doubt is another place where we get knocked out, where we don't think our possibility or our beingness has within it that capacity, or we don't have the right. And according to the legend, the next part of the story is exquisite. Because you know the statues of the Buddha with the Buddha touching the earth? The Buddha evoked Gaia, the goddess of the earth, to bear witness to the accumulated virtue that he had made over eons. So he didn't say, you know, I'm a big tough dude. He let the earth speak for him. And what that says to me is this is our body. And this is our relationship with the earth. And this is our Sangha body. That when we don't have access to our own goodness ourself, our body can help us. The earth can help us. Our Sangha body can remind us. We have to finesse our way through this. We don't battle it out. We don't superimpose positive ideas of ourself on top of negative ideas of ourself. We need to come in contact with another level of reality, something that knows differently. When Gaia bore witness to the virtue that had been accumulated for eons, that was the last stance of Mara, and Mara was vanquished. So when we are dealing with aversion, when we're dealing with desire, when we're dealing with doubt, you can feel that you are in good company, and you don't need to engage in battle. You don't need to make it go away. You don't need to superimpose a positive idea on top of all of that. What is needed is the ability to see it for what it is, to recognize this is desire, this is anger, this is ill will, this is doubt. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we change our relationship with what is happening rather than feel that it is our imperative to change what is happening. We're in a totally different kettle of fish. Because everything can be exactly as it is. The knees can hurt, and the back can hurt, and it can feel just like it feels like you got a hangover. And you can be tired and crabby and cranky, you can be sad, or grief-stricken, or elated, or joyous, or bored, silly, 
And all of it is welcome. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to make it different. You don't have to make it go away. Because when you understand that things arise, you also understand that they end. And when you touch the depth of what this means, you know that who you really are, authentically, genuinely, truthfully, is not any of the things that we experience. It's not the thoughts. It's not the sensations. It's not the moods. It's not the energy levels. It's not our perception of ourself. It's not our sense self-consciousness. It's not any of these things. So who are we when everything falls away? What is left when everything falls away? The answer to that question is our key to freedom. And that key is a key that is not dependent on the sun or the moon or the social context or our health or our financial circumstance or how much people like us or how much security that we have. And that is the possibility of what we're doing here. To understand that, to touch that, to know that, not as a good idea, but as a felt experience, as a lived experience. So each of us needs to ask, why are we here? And what do we really want? To even have a sense that there is a possibility of this kind of peace, of this kind of freedom, of this kind of joy, is so incredibly precious and rare and valuable. There is nothing in this world that even comes close to comparing to it. Nothing. So I would like to leave this with each of you for this evening as a reflection. I end with what I started with. I would like to ask you not to believe a single word that I've said, but to stay deeply connected to your own body sense know when something is spoken resonates and to listen deeply to that and if something doesn't resonate to leave it but if you feel a very strong reaction then to investigate is this something that needs more investigation or is this something really that does not belong to me we are here in a very special circumstance this retreat facility is one of the oldest retreat facilities in the country. We have food, we have shelter, we have warmth, we have water, we have each other. There are teachings being offered. It's an ideal opportunity to touch what needs to be touched, to allow what there is to be allowed and to let go of what no longer serves.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.